What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Grab our Bibles now, and we're going to turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 8. We're going to continue our study in this great prophetic book. God's Word is inspired and inerrant, so when you find Isaiah 8, let's go ahead and stand up together, recalling Scripture's authority over our lives. We're in Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 to 10 this morning, so listen now to this authoritative Word of our God. Then, verse 1, the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it, in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz, And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And so I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Razin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all of his glory And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Verse 9, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of almost drowning before, but it's a terrible experience if you've ever felt this. And I don't mean to bring up any PTSD for some of you have have been through this before. It's only happened to me one time when when I was a child. I think I was maybe eight years old. I was at that age where your parents finally let you swim in the deep end for the first time. You remember that? And they, they let you swim out there alone. And we were on vacation. We went to a place called Salt Fork in Ohio. And I had just got that green light from my parents to swim in the deep end of the pool. 
And I was swimming all afternoon, and I must have swam across that deep end without problems at least a dozen times. And it was the dozen and one time that I swam across the deep end, and all of a sudden, I was just exhausted. And I, I felt myself a tightening up. I felt all my muscles begin to ache. I felt uh, my breath not being able to fully inhale. And I had that panicking moment that you know exactly what I'm talking about if this has ever happened to you, where all of a sudden the water which has suspended you up for all this time, now it feels shockingly thin. You're like you're going to just sink right through it. And everything you knew about swimming, your brain just can't recall it. And so your arms and legs start to flail. And then you have that first gasp of, of water. It's a terrifying feeling. Now, thankfully for me, uh, I was literally right below the lifeguard stand. And so uh, the lifeguard was able to, to fish me out. And I remember uh, the next thing I knew, I was jerked around 180 degrees and I was being pulled backwards to the nearest wall. And so all was well. Maybe you've had this experience if you've been to the beach or the ocean and you get caught in that riptide current. Even if you're a great swimmer, you get caught in a riptide that pulls you out into the water and uh, it's, it's, it's tough swimming out when that happens to you. And so you know that feeling, right? Most of you, I trust, know that moment of desperation, panic, last gasp type of exasperation that you feel. And that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah is trying to convey to the people of Judah this morning. It's this feeling that, in his words, you will be up to your neck. And Isaiah, who is both a preacher and he's a prophet, right, uh, and a poet, I should even say, because a, a prophet's job is to use startling language to shock and to appall and to compel and so Isaiah begins to use this metaphor of, of a near-drowning experience to warn the people of Judah of what is about to happen to them in their political intrigues, which we spoke about last week. And so you see this drowning imagery, especially look at your Bibles in verses 5 to 8. He begins to do something that's really rather creative, I think, um, as a prophet, because he, he describes this experience of the, of the rivers overflowing their banks. And this would be something that is well known to the people in this particular area because if you remember the geography of the nation of Assyria, and you might even have a map in the back of your Bible to consult on this matter, but Assyria is basically straddled by the two great rivers of that general region, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And both of these rivers are well known to overflow their banks in dangerous flood tiding deluges that would destroy homes it would destroy farms it would it could even destroy uh, neighborhoods uh, it, certainly the low places would be destroyed by these these flooding waters and so everybody who lived in the general vicinity of the tigris and the euphrates they were well familiar with these dangerous sorts of overflowing floodwaters that could take place seasonally and especially in times of great rain. And so Isaiah is using this imagery to symbolize what Assyria is about to do in judgments 
on these lesser nations that are around it. Now remember last week, I, des- I described the historical and political context, and so I'm not gonna belabor that point again this morning. If you missed last week, you can go back and watch the video, it's all online. But let me just remind you very quickly in 60 seconds what's happening here, that the nation of Assyria, the, the nation of Assyria is the dominance Uh, imperialistic empire which is growing in power and might militarily and is expanding its influence as it gobbles up lesser nations that are unable to defend themselves around their near vicinity. And so Isaiah is describing this as a flood capturing more and more territory. And in particular danger of Assyria's flooding militaristic advance We talked last week about the nation of Syria, not to be confused, and the nation of Israel, right? The the northern kingdom, Judah is the southern kingdom, which are both now in imminent danger of being swamped by Assyria's military might. And so Isaiah is primarily warning Judah, the southern nation, but they too are going to be caught up in this, this flood tide of aggression, just as the Euphrates might overwhelm its banks and gobble up the towns and villages and homes and farms below. So what I want to do this morning is really two parts, kind of two, two parts to the sermon this morning. The first thing I want to do is be fair to the context of, of this particular prophecy. We're going to look into especially this prophecy of Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which is really fun to say three times fast. So go ahead and give it a try at least once. And you'll feel very smart. If somebody asks you what you talked about in church today, just say you looked at the prophecy of Meher Shalal Hashbaz and they'll wonder what cult you possibly belong to. But then you can just explain that it's the context of Isaiah chapter 8 and you're doing what a good Bible-believing church does, which is just work through passages of the Bible in order. So I do want to, I do want to deal with this prophecy because it is significant. But then if I'm honest, I, what, I, what I'm excited about is talking about the name Emmanuel, which we saw last week, and now we're going to see it again twice in our passage this week. And so I really want to get into the meaning of that name Emmanuel. But first things first, and with Bibles open, let's figure out what in the world this Meher Shalal Hashbaz prophecy is about. So if you've got your Bible, let's start in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Pause right there. That's a Hebrew expression which when literally translated means the spoil speeds and the prey Hastens. Now, that is it's a foreboding, dreadful name is the idea. It's a dreadful and foreboding, terrifying name because basically that, that's talking about an opposing empire conquering you and stealing from you everything that you have. That's what that name means. So there you go. Pretty exciting, right? Verse 2, I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And so I went to the prophetess, and she conceived, and she bore a son. And so uh, here's what's happening here. Now, last week we talked about this idea of a double-fulfilled prophecy, right? And uh, I suggested last week that some scholars believe that uh, MHSB, as we'll call him, is the fulfillment to to the Emmanuel prophecy. 
And they're good scholars, Bible-believing Christians who believe that he fulfills that in a, in a temporal way. And there are others who think that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, is the fulfillment of this prophecy. But I suggested last week that, that Calvin, and I actually argued for this, for this position as well, Calvin says that only Christ is the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. And some think of it as a double fulfillment, a temporal fulfillment in the days of Isaiah and the subsequent fulfillment in Christ. No Christian debates that it's fulfilled in Christ. Matthew says so. But some people think there's a double fulfillment. And so let's not just wipe this away too quickly if we take that single fulfillment perspective of Calvin because this prophecy still has to mean something to us, doesn't it? Like we just don't jump over it if we say that Christ is the Emmanuel which we do, but we still have to deal with this. So what is happening here? Well, here's what's happening here in 1 to 4. Isaiah's saying that there's going to be a son born whose name is MSHB, right? That's his name. That's his initials. We'll call him that. And in some way, his birth is going to portend the fulfillments of Assyria's dominant influence in the region. And so what Isaiah says in verse 4 is this, For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away, underline that word, carried away, before the king of Assyria. So Isaiah goes and he has a couple of witnesses up there in verse 2, Uriah and Jeberechiah. They're going to write this down on a tablet, right? Probably like an iPad or something like that, I take that to mean. And that's going to be the starting points. That's the go button on on the timer. And then Isaiah goes to his wife, the prophetess he calls her. They conceive a child together. And Isaiah says, before this boy is able to say, my mother or my father. In other words, before he even learns to speak, then what's going to happen is Assyria is going to sweep in like that flood water and is going to carry away the spoils of Syria and Israel. Okay, so start the clock, but by the time the baby is born, before he's old enough to speak, so let's give him two years, let's say, then Assyria is going to carry off the treasures of Syria and Israel. And here's what's amazing about this prophecy. You ready for this? It's exactly what happens. Because if Isaiah gives this prophecy in 735 BC, which we mentioned last week, Before two years elapse, this is exactly what takes place. And I want to show that to you in your Bible. So flip with me backwards in your text to 2 Kings chapter 15. Now we're moving to the left in the Bible, but this is is chronologically synchronous to the events in Isaiah. So the Bible is not strictly written in chronological order. You already knew that. I trust you did. So go back to 2 Kings chapter 15, and we're going to see this fulfilled. So look at 2 Kings chapter 15 and go to verse 29. 2 Kings 15, 29. In the days of Pekah, the king of Israel, that's the son of Ramalia that Isaiah keeps talking about. Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came and he captured Ion and Abel-Beth-Makkah and Genoa and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee And all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to 
of Syria. So if you look on the map and you go through all these towns, you can almost see that spilling flood water of Assyria's aggression coming and deluging and destroying town after town after town all the way down even to Naphtali and to Galilee. And what does it say in verse 29? It says he carried the people captive to Assyria. There it is. It's the exact fulfillment of the Meher Shalal Hashbaz prophecy, exactly as Isaiah gave it. In fact, it only gets worse from there on. You go on to verse 30. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramalia, struck him down, put him to death, and reigned in his place. And in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, and now the rest of the acts of Pekah, and then it goes on. Now, before we turn away from kings, I also want to point out, if you go over to chapter 17, while we're right here in the book of Kings, so Hosea replaces Pekah as the king of Israel. And how does he fare against Assyria? Any better? No, he does not fare any better. In fact, these flowing tide waters of militaristic aggression keep on coming. And even after Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, he too is replaced by Shalmaneser in verse 3 of seven, chapter 17. What do we see next? But they continue to wipe away, to sweep away Israel all the way until we get to verse 6 of chapter 17. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites, Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala on the Habor, the river of Gozan in the cities of Mades. And that is fulfilled in 722 BC. And so for about 10 years, a little more than that, Assyria just eats away, sweeping over Syria and taking the people of Israel captive exactly as Isaiah had prophesied it in the MSHB prophecy. Now, let's go on to uh, verse 8. I'm sorry, 8.5. Uh, 8.5 eight, to 8. And let's look at how Isaiah then uh, also prophesies to Judah, who is about to get caught up in this as well. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. Pause there. What's that? Well, see, in the, in the city of Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah, the way that they got water into the city was this, this uh, the Shiloh River, which was fed by the Gihon Spring. It doesn't naturally have a lot of water in, in the capital city of Jerusalem. And so they depend on this, this uh, diverted water from the Gihon Spring. They called it the Shiloh. And Isaiah is saying here, since you're not depending on God's provision for you, Judah... Therefore, verse 7, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and go into, over its banks, verse 8, and it will sweep into Judah too, all the way down into the southern kingdom, you see. But watch this. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even up to the neck. Now that's near drowning levels, but not drowning itself. And so Judah's going to be brought all the way into a very moment, that calamitous, panicking, dreadful, terrifying moment where you think you're about to drown right up to the neck, but then what's going to happen next? Deliverance. 
Judah will panic for a moment, but it will be delivered by God's grace. And that's why you notice this incredible change in tone. Didn't you notice that? Between 9 and 10, which are entirely optimistic, they're encouraging, they're comforting words to God's people, and that terrifying panicky feeling you get when you read verses 5 to 8. And the change in tone comes when we say the name Emmanuel. Does that make sense? So here we go. Watch the change in tone. You're going to see Emmanuel now twice, and this is what I'm excited to get into. The first time we see the name Emmanuel is in verse 8. Look at that. Maybe even underline it in your Bible. It says that what? It will sweep on into Judah, and uh, it, excuse me, it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. And then he says, Oh, Emmanuel. It's not just Emmanuel. It's oh, Emmanuel. It's evocative. It's, it's evoking the name of God. It's appealing to the name of God. It's, it's, as it is expressed here in verse 8, it's a prayer of deliverance. It's that drowning one flailing his hand at the last moment. It's that last gasp of help that Judah can pray to God, our Emmanuel, our God with us. And so the first time this name Emmanuel is said here at the end of verse 8, it's as a prayer of of desperation. Now, I don't mean to quibble with the translators of the ESV because they did a wonderful job in most of our translation of our text here. My only quibble is that I wish they would have put an exclamation mark at the end of verse 8. Okay? Oh, Emmanuel is a cry. It's a plea. It's a prayer. And in my view, an exclamation point would fit there perfectly. I was always taught as a writer don't overuse exclamation points. You should only use them about once every 10,000 words or so, which is every 30 pages. You don't want to constantly use exclamation points. But there are places where you have to exclaim, and this is such an exclamation of help and deliverance. Right? And so the second time we see it is actually down in verse 10. Now the ESV translates it here as simply as God with us. Here it's taken as a fact. It's a, it's a statement of truth. God is with us. This is an indicative. And so what I want to do now for the rest of our time is just think about this name, this beautiful, glorious name, Emmanuel. What does it mean, Christian? When we say Emmanuel, what does it literally mean to us? God is with us. And we can say that because we're Christians. That God has sent his son. That God has come to us in the second person of the Trinity. These are the very glorious truths that we celebrate this time of year. We're celebrating as believers the incarnation of Jesus Christ into the world as our deliverer. And so when we say Emmanuel, listen, it's not just some kind of a cheerful like Christmas card type thing that we say. It's not just some sort of emotional banter that we say. But when we say Emmanuel, we Christians can say it and we can believe it because God is with us in Christ, right? And so this is hope for us. This is the good news of the gospel right here in this old Hebrew word, Emmanuel. But I will tell you this, not everybody can say Emmanuel. God is with us. The agnostic, what is his motto? God with us? No. The agnostic says God is beyond us. The agnostic says, well, we don't know if there's a God. 
The agnostic, remember, there's a difference between an agnostic and an atheist. An atheist says there isn't. An agnostic says, we don't know. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. An agnostic says, if there's a God, he's beyond us. It's unknowable. It's not something that can be known or ascertained. An agnostic goes out to look at the sky at night and he sees the heavenlies and he says, well, who can know? Don't know. An agnostic can go to the Grand Canyon and see the glories of what God has made and he can say, well, can't be sure. Who knows? Who knows if there's a God? God is beyond us. God is beyond knowledge. God is beyond our comprehension. If there's a God, who knows? And he shrugs. And so an agnostic cannot say God with us. An agnostic says God is beyond us. But I'll tell you what, one thing the agnostic cannot do is when he gets into trouble, when he goes through some suffering, when he goes through some period of difficulty in his life, what does he lack? He lacks somebody to call out to in that moment of desperation, doesn't he? He doesn't have anybody to go to. And so he's utterly alone in that moment of his greatest suffering, whereas the Christian calls out and knows that God is with us in Christ. Now let's go on to the atheist. What does he say? Does the atheist say that God is with us? No, he does not. What does the atheist say? The atheist says God is beneath us. The atheist says we've advanced beyond the stage of needing these old-fashioned gods of the ancient men. The atheist says that we don't need a conception of God. Like Marx, he says God is dead, or Nietzsche, I think it was. He says we don't need a God anymore. And so the atheist is so proud in his knowledge, he's so wise in his intellect that he actually believes that to have a God is below his standard, right? The atheist, the atheist thinks that he is wiser than all the ancient men. He knows something that the people of old uh, didn't know, and so he considers himself too good to believe in a God. An atheist says God is beneath us, but what's the atheist's problem at the end of the day? And he thinks he can answer all of those questions that God posed to Job in Job 38 to 40. Remember that series of questions? Atheist thinks he's got all the answers to that, but here's one thing the atheist doesn't know in his intellectual arrogance. He doesn't know how to get rid of his guilt. And all of his wise learning Yet the atheist is still mired in his guilt and in his shame and in, in all of his supposed wisdom, he knows not how to alleviate the guilt that he struggles with and so he's left in the same boat that the agnostic is. Now we could go on to the pantheist. What does the pantheist say? Does the pantheist say that God is with us? No, she doesn't. The pantheist said, God is within us. See what I'm doing here? You sense the pattern? The pantheist says God is within us. And she too thinks that's such a beautiful sentiment. God is everywhere. God is in the rocks. And God is in the trees. And God is in the butterflies. And God is in the bees. And, and maybe she's read some book on Eastern uh, mysticism. Or maybe she's following some Instagram page that she thinks is very clever. And so, so what does the pantheist do? She says that God is everywhere. God is in us and within us and I'm God and you're God and the trees are God and the rocks are God and the snails are God and what does she do? What is her great mistake in all of this? Is this something clever and beautiful that she's saying? Well, it sounds like it at first blush, but what she's really doing is destroying the distinction bet between the creator and the creation, you see. And saying that God is within us, what she actually does is reduce humanity then 
to the same level as the garden snail or the slug under the rock. If God is within everything, then there's nothing special about humanity, is there? So the Christian says God with us. The agnostic says God is beyond us. The atheist says God is beneath us. The pantheist says God is within us. Is there any more possibilities? Well, there's at least one more. Does anybody say God is against us? Is God against us? Well, before we dismiss that too casually, perhaps we might give that a go. Because for the unconverted person, that is biblically true. God is against the unconverted man. He is not neutral to the unconverted. But actually, God is the enemy of the unconverted man. If you don't believe me, let's turn our Bibles very quickly now to Romans chapter 5. And you can look at this in Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. Follow with me in your Bible, please. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Uh Uh-oh, verse 10. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So Paul says something here that's incredibly important. God is against the unconverted. He's not neutral to him. But God stands with wrath against those who have not been converted to Christ. In fact, as Scripture says that the unconverted are the enemies of God, verse 10, and you say to yourself, how could that possibly be? I thought if there was a God, he would certainly be on my side. But the problem here is that in our rebellion, we have turned our backs on God. And we have become not just neutral to him, but but actively his enemies in an unconverted state. And so what's interesting about the Isaiah prophecy is it won't just be Assyria that lashes out in wrath, but it will be the wrath of Almighty God at the judgment. It will be not a judgment of the floods of water, but a judgment of the fires of hell. And so that's why Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 8, going back to our main text, verse 9, strap on your armor and be shattered. Because there's nothing then that you can do to protect yourself from the wrath of this great and holy God. If you stand opposed to him as his enemy in the unconverted state, if you stand opposed to this God, strap on whatever armor you want to come against him, and yet you will be shattered. And so the unconverted man, it's true, God is against him, not just neutral. That's why, and I think I've belabored the point to make it clear enough here, that only the Christian can say the name Emmanuel and mean it. Because only for the Christian saved by the blood of Christ can we legitimately say that God is with us. Right? With. With. Not beyond, not beneath, not within, not against He is now with us. And if you should say, how is he with me? Well, let me quickly name off ten ways, even as we close out the message for this morning. How is our God with us? Well, he is, first of all, with us in his incarnation. The word became flesh. 
John 1.14. He is with us as his church, as we gather in his presence. We're not alone here, even as we are gathered here together this morning, but the very presence of God is with us. He is with us in his word when it is read and when it is preached and when it is believed. He is present with us even in this sacred and ancient text. He is with us in the sacraments when we meet down here with our Lord at the table. He is with us in his Holy Spirit who Jesus said would indwell the people of Christ, John 14 and John 16. He is with us in our sufferings, believers, just as he was with the children of Israel in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3 and as he was with Daniel in the lions then in Daniel chapter 6. He is with us, Christians, even as we are being persecuted like Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He is with us in our prayers. He is with us even as we worship him and he will be with us, Revelation says, when we go to be with him forever in the heavenly places. And so we are unique among all the people of the world in that we can truly say Emmanuel and actually mean it. And in the subsequent chapters that come, as we go through the book of Isaiah, we're going to be looking at chapter 9 for the next couple of meetings together. But when we get into chapter 10 and 11 and 14 and 15 and 17 and 28 and 37 and so on, Isaiah is going to introduce a new concept, a beautiful concept. It's the concept of the remnant. You're going, to re you're going to want to remember this. This is going to become key. The remnant of Isaiah will be the fact that he will continue to be with his covenant people even as they face those surrounding waters that would otherwise have drowned us. Isaiah will continue to show that no matter what happens, politically or otherwise, that there will be a people of God who remain faithful to him even as God remains faithful to us. And that's the good news of the gospel for us on this Sunday morning. Let's pray as we stand and close together. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge your holy name. It's a delight for us to sing the name Emmanuel as we sing our, our Christmas songs this time of year. And we do thank you that you are with us in every possible way in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.